Welcome to The Motivated Mind, where I challenge you to expand your perspective on how to achieve a successful life through motivational lessons, reflections, and interviews with other motivated minds. Welcome back to The Motivated Mind, a top 100 health podcast, thanks to each of you. This is episode 329, and I'm your host, Scott Lynch. Thanks so much for listening. If I've brought you any value, please be sure to leave a review and hit that subscribe or follow button. Don't be a stranger. Shoot me a DM on Instagram or Facebook and let me know what you want to hear more of. And please be sure to share the podcast. Today, we have another special guest that joins the pod, Riley Kirk, a natural product chemist and cannabis research scientist. Her current research interests focus on characterizing the transformation and rearrangement of cannabis secondary metabolites during the smoking process and how we can better predict what pharmacological effects this leads to. She's passionate about providing education on the chemistry of nature and specifically the chemistry and pharmacology of cannabis through her social media channels, which have amassed an impressive following of 440,000 plus across her social media platforms. Riley and I dive into why education is harm reduction, the impact of platform censorship and self-censorship, the misnomers about cannabis and years of propaganda against it, the health benefits of cannabis, how we should thoughtfully seek multiple research sources before formulating an opinion around cannabis and quite frankly, anything. Cannabis and alcohol, the difference between the two as it relates to the impact on our bodies, how CBD and THC can help with anxiety and the appropriate dosing for both, the difference between pharmaceutical drugs and cannabis and the timeline relief between the two, and finally, the impact of cannabis on our sleep. I hope you all enjoy our conversation. Want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily, then distribute it everywhere, and even earn money all in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters, and here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Ever since I discovered Spotify for podcasters, I feel like it's allowed me to be more creative because I've been able to simplify the admin aspect of my podcast and focus on developing more valuable and creative content. I highly recommend you give it a try. Download the Spotify for podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. Speaking of academia, give us your background. Like, how did you get into your profession? And then second, 
what drove you and attracted you to doing what you're doing today? Because obviously I hear a lot of passion in your voice on your videos on social media and the last time we connected. So how did you get into it and what attracted you to it? Yeah, I'll just start by saying part of the passion and the drive for creating this content is really just thinking about the information I wish I had 10 years ago and, you know, trying to provide that for people, both as just, you know, I always say education is harm reduction. And if we can help educate people on how to use these different substances, people can use with more intention and education and they can share that with their healthcare providers and their parents and their siblings, you know, their whole network around them. And it can really change the way that we think about many different substances, including cannabis. But the way that I got to my current position, I'll try to do the relatively abbreviated, but you know, I've been using cannabis essentially my whole life, about since 14 and pretty regularly since. I never, ever thought it was going to be a career for me. It was just kind of something that I used as medicine and both recreational as well. But, you know, I was an undergraduate. I really didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. I didn't have any like real passions at that time. And my major was biomedical science. All I knew is I didn't want to be a doctor. That's what I learned with my, <laughs> with, with being a biomedical science major. I respect doctors so much, physicians, but it's just not something that resonated well with me. So when I graduated, I just got right into the hard sciences and I became an immunology scientist. So I worked by analyzing patients' um, blood, serum, and plasma who are on new pharmaceutical drugs. And this helped us determine if those drugs were working for whatever endpoint they needed to measure. So I was doing like some of the hard science work, but I was also like programming uh, robots to do this stuff too. And it was, it was kind of redundant. Like I was kind of just doing the same thing every day. I didn't know a lot about the drug. I wasn't doing any sort of drug discovery. It was just like, hey, Riley, here's your task for the day. You know, do them and then go home. So immediately I was like, okay, this isn't really stimulating enough for me. And then that's really when I started to dive into what do I want my career to be? Because this didn't seem like something I could do forever. So I really started to look into my passions and something that I had always done since a young age is extract things. I was obsessed with nature. I always liked making natural products and tinctures and teas and, and medicines, but I didn't understand that there was an entire science behind it. I kind of thought it was like, you know, woo-woo hippie stuff at the time. I really didn't know. I had no prior education here. And then I found this field of study called pharmacognosy. So it's a branch of pharmaceutical sciences. And if you break it down, it essentially just means the knowledge of pharma. Because before we had pharmaceutical drugs, all we had was medicinal plants and fungi and just nature to use as medicine. So I really started to take a deep dive into this and I started to look at these different programs so I could learn more. And somebody I was working with at the time, her daughter was dating someone who was in a pharmacognosy program at the University of Rhode Island. And I was like, that's crazy because I have never heard of this branch of science before. And all of a sudden I have like a relatively close person in my network who studies this. So I went down and visited him at the University of Rhode Island. I talked to the grad students. I talked to the investigators there, the PIs. And I was like, this seems like something I could absolutely get incredibly interested in in Golfton. So I applied for that program. I got in. And during grad school, I studied like every single 
natural product like branch that you can think of. I studied diatoms, cyanobacteria, plants, fungi, like everything. It was so amazing. And I had this completely different view of chemical ecology and natural products and how they interact with your body. But at the end of grad school, I really started to study CBD a lot more. And specifically, um, how we can formulate CBD products, specifically topicals like uh, creams, salves, lotions, these type of things, to actually penetrate deeper in the skin and get to the molecular target. Because most CBD products are not necessarily formulated by experts. They're really just marketed really, really, really well. Uh, you know, you have like Rob Gronkowski advertising for a CBD salve, like you're probably going to buy that if you're a football fan. So you saw a lot of that. And I was really interested in the hard science. So I published a paper on uh, CBD that was really fun. It was fun to kind of get into the cannabis community in that way through research. But then I started to be the teaching assistant for the cannabis certificate program that URI offered. And I found it extremely fun to make educational videos for these students and to really break down the science in a way that they understood. The messages they would send me were like so fulfilling and it made me like feel so good that they have this perspective change with cannabis. But then I really got thinking and I'm like, I wish this information was accessible to everyone. Because, you know, it's great that it helps so many people in this program, but the program's expensive and not everyone can afford that. So this was around the time the pandemic really started to hit. And at the same time, TikTok got really big. So I was like, well, I'm not doing anything else. Like, might as well make some content, which I'd never done before. <laughs> like, so that was kind of a, a leap of faith. But the first video I made just saying, hey, here's my background and I want to teach you guys about cannabis it just blew up. I mean, almost immediately I had like almost 200,000 followers just within my first few videos. It, I mean, like blew up. It was awesome. And, you know, I started to make a bunch of videos from there. And at this point, censorship wasn't that bad. So it was really fun to make content. Uh, you could say THC and cannabis and CBD and not get in any trouble. And since then things have changed, but Essentially, after that, I got a job as a research scientist at a company to study the chemical components of smoke. But typically, all of the research that has to do with smoking is negative. It's saying, you know, what are the harmful things that are in smoke? And this company really focused on, you know, are there any good things in smoke? Is there unique pharmacology that really helps people? Because we know that medical patients specifically prefer smoking over other consumption methods. So what is behind this? Can we investigate this more? So we not only did uh, some research into smoking, but we also formulated some products. And then more recently, I've really moved to just straight education and research only. So now I'm working as an adjunct professor back at the University of Rhode Island, and then I'm also hosting a podcast called Bioactive that talks about not just cannabis, but other natural products, pharmaceuticals, even things like toxins, and really trying to break down how these molecules work in your body so that people have more knowledge about you know, the healing benefits of things and even the potentially harmful effects of some substances. And that podcast is expected to launch in July, so next month. That's so exciting. That's so exciting. You covered, you covered such juicy stuff there. So your first two videos, you, you pump out, and then all of a sudden you blow up and there's 200,000 followers, and you hit on something that is so true. People want this information. And so the question becomes, if people want the information, why do they want the information? It means that there's a lack of information out there. Why 
from your perspective, do you think that there is a lack of information out there? Because there isn't a lack of research. There's a ton of research going on. And I, I think I've heard you say this on some of your content, like, guys, there's not a lack of research out there. And so if that's the case, then from your perspective, why are people not getting that information and information that can help their health, their mental health, their physical health? I mean, this is an amazing plant that so many people still look at negatively. Yeah, I think there's a few things going on here. And yeah, I will point out first, like everyone says, you know, we need more research, we need more research. And I'm always like, where? Like, what, what part do we need more research in? And it's usually not a we need more research. It's I haven't read the research. And I don't understand like where those gaps are. But you know, the research is also not written for the everyday consumer to understand. It's written in essentially cryptic language that's meant for only academics to understand. So it's no fault to the general uh, public. We need more communicators to be able to communicate that impactful science. But I think another issue is there is a huge gap between research professionals, academics, and the general consumer. So oftentimes, there, there's so many nuances when it comes to cannabis, as far as you know, consumption methods, the different strains, the different even adverse effects and medicinal effects of cannabis. And if you don't consume the plant, and I'm not saying everyone should consume the plant, I'm just saying like, if you are educating on this plant, it is very, very helpful to also consume the plant because you have this really heightened knowledge of exactly how that plant interacts with you, what the different products are that are available, how those different products make you feel. And it's really difficult to communicate all that from just reading about it. It really is. And if you are able to do that, like more power to you and I will amplify you any day. But it is very difficult if, if you hadn't consumed the plant. So I think that is a huge issue, but also censorship, what I just mentioned too. It's you know, I've, I've talked to a lot of people that have had their accounts removed, their videos taken down, and their educational videos. My Instagram account has been removed 10 times in just the past year. Like 2022, my Instagram was removed 10 times, and I only post educational content. So censorship is, I think, the biggest limiting factor. And if we aren't physically getting censored by these different outlets like TikTok or Instagram, people tend to also self-censor, which is, you know, it's really unfortunate because then you're impacting the quality of the material you're making. Like I used to use the word, you know, cranibus or something like that instead of saying cannabis to try to get around the censorship because on, you know, TikTok, I'd have like five videos removed in a row. And I'm like, oh my God, my whole platform is about to be removed. So I moved to self-censorship. And then one day I was like, I can't do this. Like, if I'm going to teach, I need to just do it right. And if I, if there's consequences to that, that's fine. But I'm not, I'm not going to keep doing this just to obey the algorithm. So I kind of stopped doing that. But if you scroll way back in my TikTok, you'll see, you'll see self-censorship for sure. It's unfortunate that some people need to take that stance to play that game, but good for you for not bowing down to the big platforms. Obviously, here in the United States, cannabis is still federally illegal. But where or why do you think these social networks have taken, and not just social networks, it goes beyond social networks. Google's the same way, right? If you're a cannabis company, for the most part, unless it's CBD company, you can't advertise on, on Google. 
maybe even CBD actually. No, it's CBD too. It's it's all a disaster. Yeah. So why do you think they're taking this stance? Because obviously the Safe Bank Act hasn't got pushed through. And so that is kind of, I want to say, an excuse that some of these platforms take that, well, it's still federally illegal. So we're going to do right when a lot of these social platforms, and I'm not pointing fingers here, break a ton of rules. Some reports that came out on Instagram, their own report about body shaming with younger women, right? Children. There was a more recent report on sex trafficking with children to with Instagram as well. And these are all facts. I'm not, you know, spitting emotions here. These are these are true things. Why then do you think they take this stance on cannabis? Yeah, I think this is a really difficult question. First, I'll say I don't think we'll ever know, like the general public. I think there's so many like secrets and, and big tech and that we just won't know. But I, I have to assume that there has to be a lot of money involved, right? It's not like they're, they, I wouldn't assume that these giant tech platforms actually want to make sure that educational material isn't reaching the wrong people. Like that seems kind of absurd. I always blame the pharmaceutical industry. I think they control so much more than what we think. We see their ads everywhere. We know their money is ingrained in every part of our society and controls all the politicians and all these really powerful people. And I would assume that they also have quite a lot of stake into what information about cannabis and other natural products reaches the general public. Because not only can cannabis and using cannabis replace a lot of pharmaceutical drugs, we have evidence for this. Like it can replace a lot of pharmaceutical drugs, but also we can grow it. And we, would, we don't need to go through any third party to, to get that medicine if we do want to cultivate it ourselves and then be in charge of our own medicine. And I think that freedom and that lack of commerce is very scary to a lot of very wealthy companies. Yeah, I, I think that is a good perspective and assumption that probably isn't far from the truth, but it's hard for us to 110% say that is the case. I mean, if you just follow the dollars, which it's public information, you look at lobbying dollars, pharmaceutical company and the food industry are the ones that commit the most amount of money. And there's a big delta. When I say the most amount of money, it's not like a few hundred thousand dollar difference. We're talking hundreds of millions of dollars that these institutions, these companies are pumping into lobbying dollars in order to keep control or keep things the way that they want. I know there's, I can't remember his name offhand, but there's a whistleblower that I believe has his own podcast and he's going out that used to work for Coca-Cola. And he's coming out and saying how Coca-Cola is you can buy it with uh, food stamps, which you shouldn't be able to because it's not a nutritious product whatsoever. And the way that Coca-Cola was able to make that happen was through lobbying dollars. And it's so sad that that is, it's been happening for a long time, but I feel like the spotlight is starting to be put on these things more. And especially I would say the millennial generation, I feel like kicked this off of saying, no, I actually care what's getting put in my body, whether whatever way that I'm consuming it. No, I actually care about my health. And because they're prioritizing it now, all of a sudden they're starting to say, well, wait a minute. Why is it that when I go to the grocery store, it's nothing but crap food at eye level? Wait, who owns these companies? Wait, where are these dollars coming from? And people are 
leveraging critical thinking, which is beautiful, and actually doing their own research, speaking of research, and saying, oh, okay, this isn't so far-fetched, but years ago, we were looked at saying people who say this, like, oh, conspiracy theorists. And it's like, well, not really. They get lumped in with everything else, but you just follow the dollars. It's all public information. Right. And some conspiracy theories are right. So although you sound crazy, like sometimes they are right. I also think that COVID really impacted how we see ourselves as resilient and how much can you provide for yourself if you were in a situation where the world shut down? Because a lot of people weren't prepared in so many different facets, not just food security, but medicine security too. And if your medicine is cannabis or other natural products, you can cultivate that at home. And I think COVID was such an eye opener for so many people. That's a really good point. And on top of that, I think people were starting to just do general research because and I'm not I don't want to get into the covid discussion, but because we spent three years collectively as a society talking about it, everybody's tired about it. But people started doing their own research, whether, you know, they found correct information or wrong information is almost irrelevant. It was the fact that people were taking the initiative to actually do digging and do research on their own. There's a famous saying, and I'm going to so fuck this up, but that there isn't a lack of information out there. There's a lack of willingness to search for the information. I mean, the internet has trillions and trillions and trillions of pieces of information. So it's not that the information doesn't exist. It's maybe this lack of willingness to go search for it and do your homework, right? And and listen, I'm not blaming any of us. At the end of the day, you work a nine to five, you're exhausted, you come home. The last thing you want to do is dig into something heavy. But these things should be important to us, especially what we put into our body, because it's the only body we get. Yeah, absolutely. And I also think, you know, during the time while we were all kind of in isolation, we had a little more time than we had ever been used to before. And that kind of let us down you know, making our own food and doing our own research and looking into things we kind of wished we had more time to forever. I mean, time is just so valuable and just so limiting to so many things. And I talk about this all the time with, with natural products, because I make a lot of my own medicine, whether it's topicals or tinctures or things like this. But I always say, I understand that not everyone can do this. It is not accessible for everyone, not just because, you know, the information of what, am I making a, an alcohol-based extract or a water-based extract? What are the active components? You know, the actual time that it takes to learn, but then you have the time it takes to do. And that also is, you know, a significant amount of time compared to if you needed to go pick up your pharmaceutical, it's already prepared and ready to go and dosable and in a form that's ready to take. And that saves people a significant amount of time. And we are just an overworked population in general. Yeah. I mean, look at all the services that we have. Well, first of all, as humans, we are now used to immediate return, right? We want something. We can pick up our phone. If we need a nice little dopamine hit, we can go on Facebook and just start scrolling away. If we want to order food, we can pick up our phone and order it through Grubhub or DoorDash or whatever. We are just a society that has been conditioned to having instant gratification and you know, it's interesting. My parents, they own seven acres and my mom is super into gardening. So she makes her own salsas. I mean, she does everything and she dedicates a significant amount of time, but she also really enjoys doing it. And the food tastes so much better. And it's so much better for you because she can control all the inputs, all of the chemicals or lack thereof that she's using on the plants. 
And it's definitely really rewarding for her and the rest of the family because she puts baskets together for the entire family. But yeah, it's this fight internal fight or external fight that we have with this instant gratification system that we're just so used to nowadays. And it's like, well, it takes a lot of time. I always think too, a lot of people say they don't have a lot of time, but if you actually looked at their schedule and what they're doing, I'd call bullshit on that. And I was guilty of this too as well. And I'm not disagreeing that some people don't have the ability to have four kids. You're trying to meal prep for them and do, you know, running around to appointments at baseball games. And, but for the I think a good portion of society, if we just looked at how we were spending our time, I'm sure we could find an extra hour or two hours out of the day, especially when you look at the average person spending over three hours on social media a day. I mean, those that time could be better utilized, arguably somewhere else. And that time can get a lot higher than three hours a day for some people. I mean, it's like it's seven, eight hours for like a significant portion of the population. Blows my mind. Blows my mind. So... We have all of this information out there. It's getting buried. When we're talking specifically about cannabis, because there is a wealth of misnomers. So I know this list could be, it could go on forever. But what are some of the biggest misnomers that you hear with cannabis in your personal experience walking out in the world and also on the professional side? Because you were talking about the delta between, you know, the pharmaceutical side, the cannabis side, the non-consumers. So what are some of those misnomers that you hear the most often? Yeah, I mean, a lot of like the misnomers that I'm exposed to are through like comments on TikTok, which I'm I'm so thankful to have that interface with consumers to be able to directly talk to them. I think one of them is that cannabis is a gateway drug. We really don't have any good evidence for this. Instead, you know, a lot of people call it an exit drug from a lot of harder substances. I think we we're going to talk about this later, but there, there's a lot of evidence that cannabis has helped so many people get off opioids and help them not just help them like get off of the addictive nature of opioids, but also help with all the different effects of withdrawal that we don't really talk about. It's not really just a simple, easy step of you stop taking an opioid. You know, there's lasting effects and cannabis can absolutely help with even things like anxiety and depression that are reoccurrent for people that are getting off of opioids. So as far as it being addictive, there are like some signs that cannabis has addictive pathways if you use it for a long time. I don't think that's surprising at all. You're essentially training your brain to have a certain compound in it for a very long time. And then if you take that away all of a sudden, yeah, you're going to have a couple effects from that. Your body just got used to that for a very long time. So if you compare apples to apples with addiction of cannabis and alcohol and nicotine and even caffeine, it's really not even comparable. And I think it's normal to have some sort of effects of addiction with psychoactive substances because it has activity in your brain. I think some other things that I just hear said like all the time is that cannabis is going to make you lazy and an unproductive member of society. If you are integrated at all into the cannabis industry or you talk to people in this industry who use cannabis daily, uh, you'll know that's not the truth. I mean, I'm a daily cannabis user. Sometimes I use it during the day, but typically it's usually later. But for a lot of people, it's very stimulating. It helps them get through a work day. It allows them to continue through. They don't just smoke and then go take a nap, which I think what a lot of people kind of conceptualize what a daily consumer would look like. And there's so many functioning members of society that are daily cannabis users. 
And then there's still like a lot of people that don't think there's like medicinal benefits of cannabis, which I think is is the most surprising because we're talking about all this research we have. And, you know, all this research really centers around the way that cannabis interacts with your body. It's through what we call the endocannabinoid system. So every single human on earth has this endocannabinoid system, every animal as well. It helps control every process in your body. And what's really cool about it is it's what we call a retrograde signaling system. So if every other system's working in one direction, the endocannabinoid system's working in the opposite direction. So this is where it really becomes helpful for fixing any sort of or helping with any sort of dysregulation in your body. If you have excessive pain signaling to your brain for chronic pain, using cannabis can actually dampen the amount of signals that are reaching your brain so it can help with chronic pain in that way. It's the same thing with many other conditions. Because the system controls everything, there are so many medical benefits to cannabis that have been documented and researched and proven in clinical trials. It's like this perfect fitting puzzle piece. Like what other area? We have a system that's receptive to this. It's like a docking station at the International Space Station. It's like it was meant to be. And that to me, I think says it all for those that are on the fence of of consumption or cannabis in general, or even just looking at it, you know, giving it a, a chance by doing some research, that in itself, I think, speaks a volume to those that are unfamiliar with cannabis. Yeah. And I think the word endocannabinoid system is very long and it's not great for communication. You lose a lot of people like right when you say that. But <laughs> if anybody is listening to this podcast who is a regular cannabis consumer and you need to talk to somebody about medical cannabis, you know, bringing up the endocannabinoid system is the greatest tool that you have. And, and that's why I really talk about it so much is it brings that rationale, that medical information to cannabis to help to explain to people like this is how this works in your body. Your body is making molecules called endocannabinoids, whether you consume cannabis or not you're producing these endocannabinoids that interact with that same system. And we know there are portions of the population that don't produce enough endocannabinoids. And because of this, you can really suffer from a variety of different conditions like fibromyalgia or IBS, or even it's been shown children with autism, they, they have lower levels of circulating endocannabinoids. And this is kind of the rationale for using medical cannabis for children with autism, because we have evidence, they're not producing enough of these molecules, we can supplement that system by giving them, you know, dosed products that are able to supplement that system enough to help them feel more stable. And I mean, again, this is based in science, we have so much literature on this. And it's just a matter of communicating that to the right people. So many people, millions and millions of people that this can help that have been blanketed with different information or told different things over the year. Back to what we were saying about misnomers, lazy. If you look at the cannabis industry too, there are some remarkably successful people in this industry. It, it blows my mind. Some that we all know of. If you're a fan of music, you've heard of Snoop Dogg. If you've watched a movie, you have seen a cannabis consumer who also owns multiple cannabis companies, right? Yeah. Our friend Seth. So he 
he owns a house plant too, is one of his companies out of uh, Canada too, as well. And he makes some amazing pottery. Oh, is this Seth Rogen you're talking about? Yeah, Seth Rogen. Oh yep. my gosh. I love his pottery, the like gloopy pottery. I love that he shares that on Instagram. Yeah. And so there are thousands of examples of people that are high output individuals in this industry. And so again, it's not just pharmaceutical, it was movies too and newspapers and this whole campaign to really throw off cannabis from years and years and years ago. And that's still, it's crazy, 2023, that's still happening. It blows my mind. It blows my mind too, honestly. Like I'm still always a little bit put back when I hear some of the things coming from from people about cannabis. And it's like you have to respond respectfully and you also have to know your limits of, you know, I will try sometimes to like convince people, but if they really have their mind made up and they're being like very outwardly rude and not receptive to any sort of information, you know, you got to pick your battles at some point. Yeah, yeah. It's similar to irrelevant of what you're talking about politics normally ends up in the same spot you know it's interesting my my dad he's retired now but state police and i remember years ago when i first entered into the cannabis industry you could tell was just so turned off and you know we're talking legal cannabis industry and i said why are you so against it you know i i just a question i'm going to put you on the defense why are you against it and he gave me some of these ridiculous points that you you had just mentioned, lazy and all this other stuff. And I said, listen, if you, because you have had to go to court, you've been to court for many, many, many cases, and you were on the stand, you took an oath, you need to tell the truth. What evidence, based on what you're telling me, could you bring to the table to back those claims that you just made? And he kind of stuttered. And I could tell it was getting confrontation. I love my dad. I mean, he's an amazing man. But I was like, See, this is this is why you you just are turned off by it. And so therefore you shut down and you don't seek out any information. And this goes with things beyond cannabis. This is literally anything. There is a bias when we have a perceived notion about something. And then so therefore we seek out information to support what we think to be the truth or that favors our claim. And then we disregard anything that goes against our claim. And I think this happens all the time with cannabis, unfortunately. It really does. And it's funny you mentioned politics because I've kind of started to get more involved in politics, even though I really didn't want to. But I understand like I am uniquely situated in my state and I need to get involved. So I live in New Hampshire and New Hampshire only has medical cannabis. There's no recreational, even though every state around us has recreational. And, you know, I've tried to come at the politicians with the science, et cetera, et cetera. But what I've really come to notice is that most politicians are of the age of, I mean, excuse me for saying this, but boomers, essentially. And they were subjected to so much propaganda during the 60s and 70s and even 80s. And that really solidified their mindset on cannabis and other drugs. And now when I communicate with this specific age group of people, I really like to start it with like, I know you've been subject to a lot of information and propaganda over the years. And I'm asking you to erase that, at least for right now, and just try to start with a blank slate and listen to research. And then 
formulate your opinion off of that and not off of your own biases. Think about your constituents first. Think about what the people have expressed to you that they want to see in this state. You know, there's so much just selfishness happening in politics where these really old people are making decisions for the entire state and they are the most uneducated people on the subject. It's it's really, really difficult to try to make change when you're dealing with these situations and these people in power that are just solidified in their mindset. It's really scary when you think about it. I mean, we we've all probably everybody listening to this has at least at one point have seen some of the points where Mark Zuckerberg or the CEO of TikTok goes in front of US government and they know the questions they ask in themselves make your head spin, you know, and you're just like, if that's your question, then you really do not know anything about these platforms, their capabilities or how people are using them or how they have been, you know, used in the past, all of these other things. If you're asking these questions, you are not someone who is in, should be in a position to actually control laws and limitations and regulations for these platforms. That actually is really makes me uncomfortable when you when you see some of these things. Yeah. And also knowing that they're viable, like you can purchase their opinion on things and their votes, which is extremely scary. But yeah, I mean, I'm trying to stay optimistic about politics, but even even in the case of like the governor having to sign that that final bill for it to go into play, it, it kind of depends. Is he going to run for president? Is he not going to run for president? That's going to impact the decision whether I have accessible cannabis or not. That is ridiculous to me. It's And it's so hard for me to stay like <laughs> patient and calm when I'm witnessing all of this happen. And I'm just like, I can't believe this is the way our political system is run. Yeah. But I, I love the approach that you had shared The you took a very empathetic approach up front. I know you have been, you know, told differently or brainwashed over the years. That's great because you're removing the blame from them and saying, it's not your fault. It was the time period that you were born in. You were pummeled and pushed and thrown all of this false information. And so by the government. Yes. By the government. For, yeah. I, I, ironically, right? Yeah. For a second, forget that and listen. And I think. You know, that's a whole different conversation around like censorship. I think it is so important that we do seek out differing opinions across the board in any subject. It is so important to our development as human beings and as a society and a successful society, hopefully long term, because if we don't, I don't know how long term it really is. And I know that sounds really end of world, but I, I think that's such a critical component to human success. Yeah, and I, I would agree about the differing opinions. And that includes like academic papers. And it becomes so obvious when you're reading academic papers, you know, a certain author will have a certain bias, and they're going to sneak that opinion in there. So, you know, it's really important not to just to read like different papers from different authors, but also just different resources, read blog posts, watch YouTube videos, you know, even people who are kind of adjacent to cannabis, their opinions on the matter are still, I think, very very valuable and respected. And if you can listen to the more opinions of people that are involved in cannabis in some way, I think it can really start to shape a more, a more d diverse thought group um, than what if you were to just read like one paper and formulate your opinion on that.
Yeah. And I think it's also finding out who paid for some studies. Because when you start to see, oh, this is interesting. This study is pushing peanut butter and that it extends uh, life, peanut butter and jelly. And then you look at, oh, it was paid for by Unilever. What what does Unilever own? Oh, peanut butter. One of the biggest peanut butter companies. Got it. That starts to make a lot of sense. That's really important for sure. Yeah. And especially like I mentioned that we studied some like beneficial components of what's in smoke. And the reason nothing had really been published on this before is all the work that had been published in this space was funded by the National Institute of Drugs of Abuse, NIDA. So they're probably not going to publish, you know, what's good about smoking (laughs) in in a peer-reviewed article. So that's why it's important for also, you know, private companies to be in the research game too, to not leave it all up to academia, because the majority of funding in academia does come from the government. Whereas if we could either crowdsource fund certain research, or I always encourage the really large cannabis companies to do more research because you have the funds, you have the access to all the instrumentation and the researchers and to start publishing more. Yeah, that's a that's such a valid point. More educated, you're able to make better decisions. The brain is such a powerful tool when it's loaded with the right information, or it can be a powerful tool in the wrong direction with bad information. So I, switching gears here a little bit, I quit alcohol like over 600 days ago. I think it's 620 days now at this point. Congrats. Thank you. Thank you. And one of the things that I found through that transition was the head tilts that you got like, oh, is something wrong because you're not consuming alcohol? And I'm like, wait, what the hell? That is so backwards. So you're assuming that there is a problem because I don't consume alcohol. It's so ingrained into our society, yet it's this massive uphill battle to talk about cannabis, right? Versus alcohol. And, you know, I I think there's a group called uh, Mothers for Cannabis. They're a pretty big group. I think they even have like an Etsy store. And the amount of bashing that I see for mothers that, oh my God, you had an edible or you smoked a joint. And, and, I'm not trying to create a war here, but some of these people, though, will turn around and grab a bottle of wine and chug down a bottle of wine at night. And it blows my mind. So if we have people that are listening that, and I'm not saying it's one or the other, what I'm trying to do here is navigate the conversation between alcohol and cannabis. You know, what are some of the biggest difference? Because from my research and even my own experience, stepping away from alcohol greatly changed my life. And I've dedicated an entire episode to this. And I consume cannabis on the weekend, Friday nights or on the weekend. And that just specifically works for me. It helps with anxiety, helps me become present, enter into clarity moving into the week. But what are some of the biggest differences between cannabis and alcohol? Because I feel like that is a loud mic all the time. Those that judge those that consume using cannabis, but yet are okay with consumption or over consuming alcohol. Yeah, this is a great topic to bring up. And obviously, there's like a lot of nuance in this conversation. I'm never going to tell someone to not consume something or to consume something. I think that you make that decision yourself. I think there's a lot of differences. Uh, I in an earlier conversation with you, I referred to alcohol as micro poisoning, because that's essentially what it is. I mean, 
when you consume alcohol, it really is causing inflammation in your body. And that's also typically followed by dehydration, because if you're drinking alcohol, you're typically not really drinking water either. And this is literally causing neuroinflammation, which results in your hangover, why you feel so terrible the next day. And you can like feel that inflammation, your brain feels full and inflamed. Whereas cannabis is anti-inflammatory by nature, not just CBD, but THC and some other compounds in the plant are anti-inflammatory. And we know that inflammation causes so many different uh, adverse effects and conditions. So that's one big difference, but also just the way in which these different compounds work. Like alcohol isn't really acting on a specific system like cannabis is. It's very promiscuous in your body. And the more alcohol you drink, the faster it can actually, you know, get into your bloodstream and in your different cells and through your brain and, and cause the effect. One thing I find really, really interesting about alcohol and cannabis combined is that they both actually affect your glutamate system. And it's an excitatory system in your body that's actually really involved in memory retention and learning. So a study found that it was looking at cannabis alone, alcohol alone, and then them combined. And because both of these work on the glutamate system, they were shown in mouse studies to the combination of the two significantly reduced the learning and memory consolidation in these mice. So although I think both have pros and cons uh, combined, they can be even worse is something to think about for sure. And also the THC levels in your blood when you're drinking are, go so much higher compared to if you're not. And this is thought because it, alcohol is kind of a blood thinner, but also it's alcohol. So you're almost introducing like a solvent into your blood and allowing that THC to be solubilized and circulating even easier. And this can make you feel uh, more high for sure. So even if you have a relatively high tolerance, this might be kind of unpredictable if you're introducing both of them together. I don't know if you've ever been around someone who's passed out while they're smoking, but I've been around a lot of people that have passed out while they're smoking and drinking specifically. And I think part of the reason this is the case is THC specifically is a vasodilator. It's going to make your blood vessels larger, which is going to drop your blood pressure. But also you have alcohol in your system, which is a blood thinner. So it can make you feel um, surprisingly woozy. And if you ever feel a little bit dizzy at all, like sit down immediately. That's like the safety recommendation I would give for anyone. But I've seen a lot of people pass out. So that's just kind of a, a safety thing for everyone listening. But yeah, in general, cannabis works on the endocannabinoid system. It has documented medicinal benefits because of that system, whereas alcohol really isn't working on any specific system. So it's acting more like a toxin compared to a medicinal, you know, plant or, or medicinal compound. So that's a huge difference between the two. You know, people will say red wine is healthy because it has resveratrol in it. That has since been just not proven by science. Essentially, the alcohol in it negates any potential benefits of antioxidants from that resveratrol. So it's it's not even the case with little bits of red wine. Any amount of alcohol really is not good for your body. It causes inflammation. That being said, if you do have some sort of condition, maybe it's pain or something like that, and you feel like a little bit of alcohol significantly improves your quality of life, 
then sure, you can keep doing that. But I would just be very, very careful about that relationship with alcohol because it can get out of hand really quickly. And I'm sure people know this, but unlike cannabis and unlike almost every other drug and, and, and supplement, you can die when you try to get off of alcohol if your body's addicted to it. It's the same thing with the pharmaceuticals, benzodiazepines. But you got to be really, really careful with how your body is getting used to alcohol, if it's becoming addictive, because getting off of alcohol is really, really, really difficult. And I think that's part of that safety profile too, is it, it's really not safe to, to allow your body to get to that point. Earlier, you had mentioned, you know, cannabis helping some with anxiety and depression, which I know to be not everybody, I don't want to put a, a blanket here, but I know plenty of people that consume alcohol because they think that it's helping with their depression or their anxiety, or they don't know where else to turn, right? And so that's the the option that they seek. For those that are trying to work through their depression and anxiety, how can cannabis potentially be an answer for, for those individuals? Yeah. So I'll start like with specifically anxiety, because I believe there is more research on uh, specifically CBD and anxiety or cannabis in general and anxiety. Both THC and CBD have been proven to help at least partially with the symptoms of anxiety. And I think a part that is often kind of overlooked is the dose you need to actually get these benefits, because it's not just like take CBD, like that's, it, that's way too simple. You, you need to talk about a specific dose. And of course, this gets more complicated when you talk about the different types of products that are on the market. Because you can buy a gummy that only has CBD in it as like the active compound, or you could buy a gummy that has the full extract of that cannabis plant in it. So now it doesn't only have CBD, it has a hundred plus other compounds as well. And that might kind of change how a certain dose makes you feel. Because even though we typically talk about THC and CBD, there's a lot of other compounds in the plant that have activity in our body that we can't forget, even if they're not researched as much as CBD and THC. So the research right now is saying if you're taking pure CBD for anxiety, a lot of people will take like 20 milligrams, 10 milligrams in like a tincture bottle or something and, and hope that's going to help with the effects. But the research really says you need 300 to 600 milligrams of CBD to uh, significantly reduce the clinical signs of anxiety. Again, this is like a huge discrepancy that I think a lot of people need more information on because a lot of CBD companies aren't even selling close to a relative dose to that. But I know more companies have started to do that. I'll give a shout out to Future Compounds because I feel like they make products that are dosable in like 100 milligram squares. And this can be really helpful uh, for a gummy or if they even sell tinctures that are the same way. So they're kind of using uh, research to guide their products, which I think is a great idea. You know, with that being said, though, if you find that a 20 milligram gummy is helpful for you, even if that's placebo, the placebo effect is real and it has clinical outcomes. So, you know, I would always recommend starting at a lower dose and kind of training your body to get used to the substance in the body and then slowly working up to that 300 milligram dose and seeing if you have measurable outcomes and if it's actually improving your anxiety. With THC, it's a different story. 
you need a very small amount of THC to help with anxiety. And you really don't want to experiment with higher doses because that can generally cause anxiety. So what I recommend for people who are kind of new to cannabis who want to try out a THC product for anxiety, legitimately start with 2.5 milligrams. 2.5. It's not a lot. And it's okay if you don't feel high. It, it's kind of like microdosing. It's a relatively small amount, but you should not. Most people do not get that, you know, generating anxiety feeling that they get if they were to take like a 20 milligram edible. So 2.5, you're kind of in that safe space, but you could even like go up to five milligrams. And for some people, up to like 10 milligrams, but you want a really low dose of that THC because both THC and CBD, they've known to cause what we call biphasic effects. So at low doses, they cause one effect and at high doses, they cause a different effect. So for THC and anxiety at low doses, it's anxiolytic, it can help get rid of anxiety. And at high doses, it's anxiogenic. So it can actually generate anxiety, which makes it really complicated to learn how to dose yourself, which is why education is so important. Right. I, I think that's also part of cannabis. Well, one, it's intimidating for a lot of people. And two, then there's also a lot of trial and error. But for those that I've heard, you know, I've said to me that, man, there's a lot of trial and error. I'm like, so is the pharmaceutical industry too as well. First of all, you know, I've brought on some health professions in this podcast too. They're, they just uh, address symptoms. They're not actually addressing the core of that thing. And then that thing actually causes additional symptoms. And so that's more of a, a rat race and running around like a chicken with your head cut off, I think, than from an experimentation standpoint with cannabis. But that's just my opinion. Yes. And I mean, so we know that CBD can act on your 5-HT1A receptor, which is a serotonin receptor. And that's the, the general mechanism that we think that CBD helps with anxiety, which is great. But kind of what you're talking about, if you were on a SSRI or a different pharmaceutical medication, that could be three to six weeks before you feel any better because it takes so long for your body to actually get used to a, a pharmaceutical like that. A lot of people can't afford to do that. They can't wait three to six weeks. They need relief immediately. And this can be a great place for cannabis to kind of fill that gap because it's going to work, specifically THC products. But CBD too, you might have to do a little more ex experimenting with that dose. But you know, it works for a significant portion of the population. That's interesting. What about cannabis and, and sleeping? So I know a lot of people with insomnia. I've brought on a couple, actually two or three sleep experts too as well. And I'm a fan of, of Whoop, but one thing I think they push out there is kind of this information on how cannabis affects sleep. And you know, I track it anytime I use it too. And they have a pointing system. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Whoop on some of the things that you track in your journal. And they say that, first of all, they use the term marijuana, which drives me absolutely insane. But anyhow, I'm not going to go off on that tangent. They they showed, or at least through my journaling, that, oh, it negatively affects you. But for people out there thinking about or struggling, I should say, with insomnia, how can cannabis potentially be a conduit for some healthy sleep? 
Yeah, so I think it's important to also start this discussion with getting no sleep is much more harmful to your general health than getting like decreased REM sleep. So, you know, I've helped a lot of people use cannabis for sleep. That's probably what I help people the most for. Interesting. Yeah, and it's specifically like menopausal women who have a lot of trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep. So the general like mechanism here is your circadian rhythm, like what makes you want to be awake and asleep and how things move in your body during those time periods, your endocannabinoids, the molecules inside your body, they have a circadian rhythm of their own. So during certain, like right when you wake up, they're really low, which is why the wake and bake hits so hard. Uh, but then later around noon, they're going to be pretty high and then they're going to kind of fluctuate throughout the day. So your endocannabinoids, your endocannabinoid system is helping control sleep in general. But if we use THC or something like CBN, something that activates that cannabinoid one receptor, if we can use that before bed, it's not only like kind of training our body to initiate that part of the circadian rhythm of like, okay, you know, this molecule is now present, you're going to start getting sleepy, especially for people who habitually use at the same time before bed, you're kind of training your body like, okay, chemical signal, feel sleepy, go to bed and stay asleep because those molecules are still circulating. Now, there is evidence that um, using cannabis before bed uh, can decrease the amount of REM sleep you get. And during REM sleep, that's also when you consolidate your memories. And this is also part of why people who use a lot of cannabis sometimes don't have a great short-term memory because you don't have that ability always to consolidate those memories. Now, it's it's interesting because uh, the paper that I'm kind of talking about this research for, uh, that paper also noted that as people's tolerance got higher and higher and higher, so they got more used to using cannabis and they used it over time, their level of REM sleep actually returned to normal and the shortwave sleep decreased. So the other type of sleep decreased. So over time, it actually can return to normal, but short term, you are gonna likely are gonna lose some of that REM sleep. But kind of what I've been talking about the whole time, if you're not getting sleep in general, your body will shut down. You can't live without sleep. You're going to not be able to drive, not be able to remember things, not be able to watch TV. You're not gonna be able to do anything uh, or work even if you are getting no sleep. So sleep is so important. Sleep, water, exercise, diet. Like these are like the core things you need to focus on on your health before you kind of move on to other substances, in my opinion. You know, you really gotta hone in on these things. And once those are to a level the best of your ability, then you can start to experiment with other things. But cannabis definitely affects your sleep. And I'm sure you've heard of CBN or cannabinol. This molecule is, you know, pretty well known for helping people with sleep. But uh, the science isn't completely there yet, actually, as to like, if that's true or not. But what we know is it activates the same receptor that THC does just to a lesser extent, just like less strong. So I believe CBN is great for sleep because it activates that receptor. It still initiates those molecules to say, okay, it's time to go to sleep, but it's less potent. So you're not going to get that like weed hangover from overstimulating your receptors right before bed. You're not going to feel as groggy in the morning, but it's the same molecular mechanism as THC. But that's just my opinion at this point that has not been like solidified by science. That's interesting. 
I am thrilled that we got to connect and bring you on this podcast because I have not had a cannabis expert on and I have had a number of DMs that people have said, oh, I didn't know you were in the cannabis industry. You know, you don't talk about it. And I'm like, man, I'm doing myself a disservice because I need to start talking about it more myself. And so by Riley bringing you on, I, I think we're doing all the listeners a great deal of adding a lot of value to their lives, but hopefully providing some value into your mission and, and what you're trying to do on social media and what some of your your new podcasts that's coming out and the work that you do uh, day in and day out. So I can't thank you enough for, for coming on, sharing your knowledge. I know we just scratch the surface. I feel like we could talk for like three hours about cannabis, so we might need to do a follow-up episode, but where can people follow you on TikTok, on Instagram? I think those are the two biggest platforms for you right now. Yeah. So I'm mostly make my content on TikTok. I try to share all of it on Instagram, but as I mentioned, Instagram has not been good to me. So I'm a little meh, but you should still follow me there anyway. So my name is Cannabicam on all social medias, which is C-A-N-N-A-B-I-C-H-E-M. I also have a YouTube channel where I do post some longer form content. I have videos like, oh, your first time at a dispensary and cannabis and sleep and these different uh, types of subjects. And then, yeah, the podcast will come out starting the first week of July, and it's going to be exploring cannabis, psychedelics, other natural products, and a bunch of just uh, really cool research that's happening in the space, all centered around education and harm reduction. So definitely check that out. It'll be on all streaming platforms like Apple and Spotify. And I appreciate you having me on this podcast because I love talking cannabis science. And I just hope that some of the listeners, like a seed was planted that just, you know, they got really interested in a certain subject and they start researching it on their own start just communicating with their own network because that's really how we drive change is not just the bottom up approach from consumer up, but, you know, share with a physician, share this information from a top down approach, and then they can help other people that want to learn more about cannabis, the medicinal benefits of cannabis and the science behind it, because we have a lot of science for cannabis. Thanks for listening to The Motivated Mind with your host, Scott Lynch. I hope you enjoyed our deep dive into redefining cannabis perceptions with Riley Kirk. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest from me, you can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok at Motivated Scott. Don't forget to join me every Monday and Thursday for new episodes. I love you all, and thanks so much for listening. Motivated Mind is a legacy division.